look at the cross. Bring your doubts to the God who gave himself for you. And even if you don't get all the intellectual answers, at least you know what God is like. He'd rather give himself for you than see you lost. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we're going to tackle some tough issues. We're going to answer your hard questions and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. With these names, the prophet Isaiah foretold the coming of the Messiah, who would bring salvation to God's people and reign forever on the throne. But now that Christ has come to us, what do these terms mean for our lives today? And what will they mean when he returns? With 25 reflections on the character of Christ, this free digital download of Jesus, the one and only, is designed to prepare your heart for the Christmas season and for Christ's coming reign. Visit ltw.org candid today and request your free download. It's a great privilege for me to introduce you all to a friend of mine. Uh, he's a, a scholar, a historian, a pastor, a professor. John, what else do you do? You do everything. Uh, my, my, my friend, John Dixon. John, thanks for being with us. Uh, great to chat with you, mate. John, for our American listeners that, that may not know who you are, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your faith walk, your faith journey, story, how all that kind of comes together. Well, I grew up in a typical Aussie home. Uh, You'll understand the relevance of that, uh, having lived here, um, which had no Christianity at all. Uh, So I'd never been inside a church before I was 16, never went to Sunday school. But we do have this quirky thing in our high schools, in state schools, called scripture lessons, which I know puzzles Americans no end. It's a sort of hangover from the early colony where churches can give volunteers to come and teach their religion in class. And so it's open to Muslims, uh, Jews, Hindus, whatever. Uh, but a majority either go to Christian scripture or non-scripture where you're supervised by a real teacher and have to do homework and stuff. So we all decided to go to Christian scripture because it was generally these little old ladies who wouldn't get you into trouble, which seemed, you know, like a really pleasant way to pass half an hour, especially as you could ask questions to make them look stupid. And that was my approach to things. But in year nine, uh, I guess I was uh, 15, I got a scripture teacher who was remarkably articulate and smart and funny and none of my smart aleck questions worked on her and um, she intrigued me about the Christian faith and then she eventually asked if the whole class wanted to come to her home on Friday afternoons after school which would now be illegal right Um, (laughs) uh, for hamburgers milkshakes and scones and uh, and we could ask our questions about the faith we went for the food we got way more than that. Uh, you know, 15, 20 of us would turn up to this woman's home. She lived just around the corner from school. And uh, we asked our questions. We ate her hamburgers. And uh, over, I guess, about 18 months, um, I found myself thinking there was something really to this. And she read the Gospels to us, uh, which was a great strategy because she knew we knew, knew nothing. 
And so the best way to do it, you know, to introduce people to the Christian faith is to introduce them to the person, Jesus. Mm. And um, I found myself a fan of Jesus and then a follower of Jesus, a worshiper of Jesus. That's where it began. Then I had this crazy idea that I should spread the word, as it were. Um, I just thought it was brilliant what Jesus had done. And so I wanted to, you know, tell the world. So my mates and I, um, and about five or six of us became Christians through this one woman, three of whom are now in ministry. Um, But those same guys said, let's start a band. (laughs) And I'm sure there was um, partly a kind of rock and roll ambition. Uh, But partly it was, we just wanted people to know about what we'd come to discover. We'd never heard of Christian music, Jonathan, uh, which was kind of a good thing for us. We had no <laughs> no influences from the Christian music world. And we just started playing pubs and clubs and schools and prisons and unis. And it eventually became full time. And I would introduce songs and mention the Christian faith in between songs to the point where I could ask an audience to even listen to me introduce a song for 10 minutes, 15 minutes sometimes in the middle of a show. Uh, and that's where I learned to preach um, in between songs. That's where it began. And out of that came the book writing and out of that came the academic stuff and everything that followed. I don't know how much more detail you want, brother. But yeah, well, well <laughs> that's where it fill, began. fill us in a little bit about what, what you're doing now. Um, so you were in a, a pastoral role, but then you started this um, Center for Public Christianity. Tell us a little bit about the things that you're doing at the moment. Yeah, some of my friends wonder if I haven't worked out what I want to do when I grow up. You know, it's just like, (laughs) you keep doing so many different things. But for me, it's just one thing. It's just, I want to make Christ public. It's simple. And the first way of doing that was starting a band. Um, And then I started to write books. Um, But it was all just, you know, not because I'm a great musician or a great writer. It's just I wanted to make Christ public. Out of that came the academic stuff. You know, I wanted to uh, train in theology And uh, then I did ancient history. Uh, And yeah, I I went into uh, regular church ministry, pastoring a church. I started the Center for Public Christianity, which kind of gives away where my passion is. (laughs) I want to make Christ public. Um, And I've been juggling for the last 10 or so years, pastoring in a local church and doing the kind of public media and writing and all of that other stuff. And just recently, uh, in April this year, I um, pivoted to do the the other stuff full time. So now um, I've let go of leading a church, which was you know heartbreaking at one level, even though I still attend the church that I led, which is kind of lovely. And I full time write books, do media, uh, preach evangelistically, uh, run a podcast, and uh, and so on. But it's all just trying to make Christ public in a culture that. Um, pushes him to the margins. You mentioned your podcast. Your podcast is called Undeceptions. How did you come up with a title like that? What, what's sort of your drive behind that? <laughs> well, it's a word I've loved for so, for so long. It's a, it's an old 16th century word. And so, you know, it's kind of nerdy. Uh, that, that means to reveal the truth. To undeceive someone is to reveal the truth. But where I first got it, uh, in fact, uh, I didn't set this up earlier, but I have here... What is an out-of-print collection of essays by C.S. Lewis called Undeceptions. And you can't get it anymore, but I had a copy. And uh, it's a word he loved to use uh, to sort of say, you know, our world believes myths about the Christian faith. 
And what C.S. Lewis was trying to do was undeceive people. So I have long loved the word. And so when I started a podcast, it was the number one contender, undeceptions. Amazing. From your perspective, growing up, what were some of those myths that you believed about the Christian faith? And then I'm going to follow that up with what do you think are some of the ones that we're seeing today? And the answer may be kind of one in the same, but uh, just out of curiosity, what were some of those things that were perhaps barriers for you uh, before this um, scripture and school teacher came along and even after? Well, for some reason, I always believed there must be a God behind everything. Um, I hadn't really pondered it deeply, but I, I do remember already thinking that must be the case. There's no way we got all of this from nothing. Uh, the orderliness of everything means there must be a God. But um, I just didn't see any relevance, I think is the bottom line. And when confronted with a Christianity that seemed pretty um, cheerful and intelligent, I I started to ask questions. And it's hard for me to recall whether I really thought them or if I picked them up and thought they'd be good excuses. I, it's hard to psychoanalyze at this distance. But I do remember asking questions like, how do we know the whole thing wasn't made up? How do we know uh, the whole thing hasn't changed? You know, it was written in one funny dead language, translated into another funny dead language. By the time it gets to English, who knows? Um, I do remember asking this scripture teacher a question like, and, and I thought it was like a really cool, smart question. I said, but if you're saying Jesus is the son of God and all that, when he died on a cross, he wouldn't have felt anything because he was like the ultimate superhero. And I'll never forget her saying, no, he was fully human, John, fully human. And he felt just what you would feel if you had nails through your hands and feet and all of the agony and betrayal of his friends. And that is somehow stuck in my head all these years later. You know, I was trying to dismiss the faith as sort of insignificant and the cross is not very powerful or poignant. And she just made me look at the cross in a profound way. I'd also, Jonathan, lost my dad, as you probably know, when I, when I was nine in a plane crash. And um, it, was, it was sort of um, after I'd sort of just started to embrace the Christian faith that I had all this sort of crisis of how could, you know, God let that happen? Um, what would he know of my pain? You know, maybe he wound the universe up, but he sure as anything isn't looking after the universe now. And um, again, this scripture teacher was very helpful in saying, look, John, it's okay to have all these doubts that you're experiencing. That's fine. Christianity can handle your doubts. God can handle your anger and upset. But please do it looking at the cross, she said. I'll never forget those words. Look at the cross. Bring your doubts to the God who gave himself for you. And even if you don't get all the intellectual answers, at least you know what God is like. He'd rather give himself for you than see you lost. Uh, and for me, that's been a, a kind of guiding principle ever since. Hmm. And coming to today from Center for Public Christianity, you're 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 seeing some of those uh, questions come your way. I'm sure. Are there any of those deceptions that you're seeing, um, whether it be in the secular world or even creeping into the church, that you're trying to address? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is what's happened. It seems to me is that more questions have been added. It's not that the old questions have gone away. So, I mean, people used to say something like, 
you know, there are modernist questions and postmodernist questions and then post postmodernist questions and they replace each other. You know, so you'd hear people say, oh, science and God, that's a modernist question. Demonstrating the historicity of Christ, that's a modernist question. People aren't interested in that anymore. Now they're interested in issues of, you know, how could there only be one way when there are so many different religions? What's the relevance of Christianity, etc.? And these are more postmodern questions. And the post-postmodern questions are sexuality, transgenderism, etc. Um, I don't think we have turned from one to the other to the other. I just think more questions have been added because it never ceases to amaze me that I might have a conversation with someone about same-sex marriage, you know, a, a sort of post-postmodern question. And as soon as they think, oh, okay, that's not as dumb as I thought, they'll suddenly throw at me a question like, but how do you know the Gospels haven't been changed over the years? And suddenly we're back to the kind of so-called modernist questions. So I, I just think um, people just have more uh, arrows in their quiver now to ask a, a Christian. But the questions are just mounting. Um, they're not really morphing. Yeah. Being a Christian voice in this sort of post, post-Christian culture, I mean, that's a big responsibility. What are some of the challenges and even some of the opportunities that you face in that? Well, the, I've long thought that um, as Christianity becomes a little more controversial in uh, Australian society, and I travel to the US enough to know that it's, you know, <laughs> heightening there as well. Uh, the opportunities are great. It's almost as if we're in this perfect storm of enduring plausibility of Christianity because Christianity has been around such a long time and it's created our culture, frankly. But that's combined with a contestability, uh, an anxiety about the Christian faith, the turning against it. And what that means is that there's this friction that creates opportunities. Mm. Um, if Christianity was still, you know, just as dominant, just as plausible, I doubt we'd, you know, I, I'd get to do as much media or, or write for the newspapers as much as my colleagues have been able to do. Um, but it's precisely because there's an antagonism that if Christians are able to jump into that antagonism in a cheerful, humble, open-hearted way, I reckon the opportunities are endless. The only way to shut down the opportunities is to be angry and smug and almost like you're not a guest at the dinner table, you own the dinner table. Right. That attitude is sure to sort of keep you out of the public space. Uh, but but if we position ourselves as you know cheerful guests at someone else's dinner party and we really want to get another invitation back, that spirit, that that's kind of cheerful, confident willingness to talk on anything but not be a jerk, um, uh, I think has uh, created so many opportunities mm -hmm. to bring the gospel into the public square. With gentleness and respect, right? Yeah. Um, I've listened to a couple of the podcasts and you're, you're, you're um, handling with some of the antiquities and, and those things at uh, places like University of Michigan. Why is historical evidence for Christianity important? Well, I don't come from the school of thought that says you can prove Christianity and convince someone to become a Christian. I come from that school of thought that says, no, in the end, it's God's great grace that draws anyone uh, to know himself. Uh, but God uses human means, and especially um, 
if people are given a good reason to read a gospel for themselves, that's when the wonderful stuff happens. When people um, don't think there's any good reason to take Christianity at all seriously, they'll just keep it at bay. So this is where history comes in. Um, it seems to me a very powerful historical argument can be made that the Gospels are early, highly verifiable histories of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And there's a vast discipline of historical Jesus studies in secular universities around the world. And we can uh, use that to show that this needs to be taken more seriously than the average skeptic on the street would imagine. So there's great value in using history as a way to get someone to pick up a gospel and read it for themselves. That's For me, that's the bottom line. But there is something historical at the heart of Christianity. We don't just go around saying, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Like, that's a kind of ethereal thing, right? We actually, we're the people who say, oh, God entered into um, Galilee and Judea and um, was crucified by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, uh, at a particular time and place and was seen by loads of people. Like, we actually say historical stuff. So whether or not a Christian likes history, you're stuck with it. Sorry, we proclaim a historical faith. Um, so sensible people are always going to ask Christians historical questions. That will never, it couldn't possibly go away. Because as soon as you say, our guy was crucified by Pontius Pilate and rose again and was seen by people, people are going to say, how do you know that? <laughs> so we're stuck with history which is fine with me because I rather like history. <laughs> it's a good side to be on. Um, thinking about younger generations, do you think younger generations are more or less concerned or even care about the historicity of the Bible? Because you kind of mentioned the whole ethereal concept, and, and there there are definitely some movements around that. So in, in sort of your, you know, from a professorial standpoint, you know, students, is there, is there a real desire for understanding the history and, and, and searching out truth and using that? It's one of the things that may be a block to someone's faith, but there are so many other things as well. I mean, you know, we've talked about same-sex marriage is a classic. Loads of young people just think it's dumb and mean to have this traditional view of marriage as only between a man and a woman. And so for them, that's the presenting issue. And they're not even thinking about, you know, how many copies of Luke's gospel do we have right, <laughs> to right, verify it. Right, right. Um, but the thing is, once, once a young person breaks through that barrier, that kind of presenting barrier of something like same-sex marriage or transgenderism or whatever it might be, might be green activism, whatever, um, they're going to get to the point probably where they take the gospel seriously. And when they do that, they are going to ask historical questions probably. So it really, for me, is just we need to be so flexible as Christians wanting to engage the world and the younger world, especially. We need to be willing to take on, you know, uh, an issue like same-sex marriage. We need to be willing to take on an issue like how many copies of Luke's gospel do we have? Uh, and, and, and be flexible enough to answer anyone's questions. I mean, it, it was Peter, right, who said, the Apostle Peter, who said, always be prepared to give everyone yeah. an answer, right? So that seems to me, whatever people are asking, we, we need to be flexible enough to try and give an answer. And I think even that word prepared, because I think a lot of Christians mm. are not prepared 
they're kind of hoping mm. the spirit will just show up and intercede. But <laughs> there's an element of you need to know this to be equipped to go out and give those answers in gentleness and respect. I so agree. And, you know, the last thing you said is is also you've got to hold that in mind. We already know how to answer every question in the sense that every question should be answered with gentleness and respect. Right. Okay. So uh, it doesn't matter how good your intellectual answer is. If you're a jerk about it. You're not going to win them. You're not. You're not. <laughs> no. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you can be as sweet and gentle as you like. And that will have an effect. It will point to the gospel. You know, the more willing to concede you are, the more humble you are, the more gracious and sympathetic you are, that will point to Jesus. But better to have that plus some good answers. Yeah. I don't want to flog the uh, the, the historical uh, questions, but um, as, as we are kind of um, coming up close to Christmas, um, there's certain aspects of history that are concrete, but there's also social history perspectives. We hear about history being rewritten or a narrative being controlled. How do we navigate that terrain? How do we discern what's genuine and real and true from um, maybe something that's been hijacked or corrupted? Well, one of the most impressive things about the New Testament documents as history is that they are history from below is how the historian might describe it. So much of our history in the ancient world is from, you know, Tacitus and Suetonius and Pliny, who were the elites of the elites of the elites. They are the winners. They were the winners already. And uh, there's a special problem dealing with those kinds of texts. You know, they're so far above. They're in the 1% of 1% of the Roman world. <laughs> and it can be tricky. And, and sadly, that's where most of our sources come from right. in antiquity. They've survived because of power. But the New Testament is one of the precious examples of a text from below, from people who were what you might call lower class. In fact, I I, um, interviewed Teresa Morgan, uh, who's the professor of uh, ancient history at Oxford University, one of the most revered classicists in the world. And this is a point she made to me recently, that even leaving aside religion, the New Testament is a precious first century text from a community we almost never hear from. And she didn't mean Christians. She meant people who are lower down the rank. We have this entire collection of documents, not just a scrap of paper, not just a random love letter or a, a you know a, a receipt for a purchase of land. We have actual writings and biographies from people who had no power. And people are just mistaken when they think the New Testament, you know, was a sort of power grab of the fourth century. You know, they hear all that silly stuff about Constantine apparently designing what should be in the New Testament. No one who knows what they're talking about thinks that. All of these texts come from the first century. They were authoritative in the second century, like agreed upon in the second century, when Christians still had no power. So... To get to your point, this is, I'm sorry, there's a long-winded no, no, way of getting good. to it, because, it, but it's a point that quite excites me, Jonathan, is that um, if you're nervous about the kind of power grab that is everywhere in our world, and, and it is one of the great concerns of our world, isn't it, that people just use power to get their way, well, when you come to the New Testament, you are reading a text that came from the very opposite spectrum. Hmm. That's beautiful. And it's not, you know... 
we think of the power of Rome and the church, and 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 so we we associate this with being a, a place from power. But you're right. I mean, the the authors would not have been right. I think I think we we need to kind of get our our historical bearings when uh, when we consider this. Um, yeah, the apostles were not sitting around going, "Oh, I can't wait till I have that Vatican," you know, <laughs> and all those treasures down below. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. it's eight centuries later. <laughs> yeah. Silver and gold have I none. Yeah. As we think about Christmas, are there some historical, you know, if we think about the historical evidences leading up to the birth of Christ, uh, to his life, obviously the, the most monumental event in human history, um, are there any things that we don't hear often or that some people may not know that you've come across in your studies or that you've kind of sort of stewed over and, and, and are just sort of profound to you that would be encouraging to people today? Well, there are loads of criticism and skepticism toward the Christmas story. Um, and I, I think there are reasonable answers to a lot of those things. I mean, people say, oh, how could a star ever have, you know, been above Bethlehem, uh, a virgin birth's impossible, and so on. Um, all of those, you know, they're fair questions, but they can be answered just by pointing out that if God exists, then a star above Bethlehem and a virgin birth are no problem. I mean, even if you believe in the vaguest God behind the laws of nature, you already believe that God puts stars into the heavens and God creates a single human being out of two genetic histories. So you already believe miraculous thresholds are past every day of the week. It's just that we're used to those miracles and we don't think about them. But if you already believe there's a God who's sort of done that in the laws of nature, um, there's no reason to think God couldn't have done that in the case of Jesus instantaneously. And so the virgin birth to me is entirely believable if you've already accepted that God exists. If you don't believe God exists, well then doesn't matter how much evidence there is, you're never going to believe it. So there are all those sorts of things. But, you know, that's not really the most impressive thing about uh, Christmas. For me, it's that repetition of the idea that um, the Lord of the universe was laid in a manger, the animal feeding area, whether it was the trough or just the room in which animals were kept. Either way, the way the Gospels emphasize the lowliness of Jesus' birth is is remarkable. It comes to this point I made a moment ago. You know, if they were inventing this, why didn't they invent it, you know, as a kind of glorious imperial arrival, right? They would have had the freedom to do that and would have been much cooler, you know, to reach their fellow Romans and Greeks, right? Instead, they just say, yeah, it was just this um, random family from a nondescript town, there was no room for them, and this baby was really undignified and laid in an animal feeding area. And, oh, by the way, that's the Lord of the universe right there. Um, I, You know, the humility of God yeah. is, to me, the most miraculous, I use that, you know, in inverted commas, miraculous element of the Christmas story. And, and you know, it's the same thing that you find in the cross at the other end of the story mm. you know so what the manger says at the beginning the cross says at the end mm. god would rather empty himself mm. for the sake of the world for the salvation of the world um than maintain his power than maintain his glory in fact 
the New Testament would go so far as to say God's glory is precisely seen in his willingness to empty himself to save uh, men and women. We're so grateful for people like you who are willing to put their time and their energies and their efforts and, and training and all that uh, for that idea of, of making Christ known in the public square. What are some ways that we can be praying for you and, and, and the ministry that the Lord's given you? Oh, that's super kind. Thank you. Well, I want to maintain, first of all, you know, a heart of worship. Uh, I believe that it, all this work comes out of worship. It, it must Otherwise, it's it can become an intellectual exercise. It can become a kind of defensive posture, trying to reclaim a Christian past. And I don't want to be involved in that. I, I just want to make Christ public. And, and you know that Peter passage that, that you mentioned earlier actually begins with, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer. Yeah. So, yeah, literally set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. You know, if people are going to pray for me, then my number one thing I'd ask for is that I would always have a heart that is set apart Christ as Lord, because it's out of that that um, confidence comes to jump into the fray. But it's also out of that that cheerfulness and humility come, because we follow that Lord who gave himself for others. Well, we'll certainly be praying for you, and I encourage people to uh, tune into your podcast, Undeceptions, with John Dixon. There's some wonderful content in there, and um, I hope that people will buy your books and listen to your podcast because you're a great blessing to the church uh, around the world. Uh, John, it's been a a pleasure to have you on the program, and and so good to see you again. Thanks, mate. Great to see you too, and I hope to get you back here to Sydney sometime. Absolutely. We'd love that. Thanks. Blessings. Can It is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend, leave a review, and subscribe. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit ltw.org candid to connect with these pages, share your questions with me, and get this week's free download. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Thanks for listening. <laughs>